the mass strike, the political party, and the trade unions. Rosa Luxemburg. Chapter 1. The Russian Revolution, Anarchism, and the General Strike. Almost all works and pronouncements of international socialism on the subject of the mass strike date from the time before the Russian Revolution of 1905, the first historical experiment on a very large scale with this means of struggle. It is therefore evident that they are, for the most part, out of date. Their standpoint is essentially that of Engels, who in 1873 wrote as follows in his criticism of the revolutionary blundering of the Bakuninists in Spain, quote, The general strike in the Bakuninist program is the lever which will be used for introducing the social revolution. One fine morning all the workers in every industry in a country, or perhaps in every country, will cease work, and thereby compel the ruling classes either to submit in about four weeks, or to launch an attack on the workers so that the latter will have the right to defend themselves and they may use the opportunity to overthrow the old society. The proposal is by no means new. French and Belgian socialists have paraded it continually since 1848, but for all that it is of English origin. During the rapid and powerful development of Chartism among the English workers that followed the crisis of 1837, the Holy Month, a suspension of work on a national scale, was preached as early as 1839, and was received with such favor that in July 1842 the factory workers of the north of England attempted to carry it out. And at the Congress of the Alliances at Geneva on September 1st, 1873, the general strike played a great part, but it was admitted on all sides that to carry it out was necessary to have a perfect organization of the working class and a full war chest. And that is the crux of the question. On the one hand, the governments, especially if they are encouraged by workers' abstention from political action, will never allow the funds of the workers to become large enough, and on the other hand, political events and the encroachments of the ruling classes will bring about the liberation of the workers long before the proletariat gets the length of forming this ideal organization and this colossal reserve fund. But if they had these, they would not need to make use of the roundabout way of general strike in order to attain their object, unquote. Here we have the reasoning that was characteristic of the attitude of international social democracy towards the mass strike in the following decades. It is based on the anarchist theory of the general strike, that is, the theory of the general strike as a means of inaugurating the social revolution, in contradistinction to the daily political struggle of the working class, and exhausts itself in the following simple dilemma. Either the proletariat as a whole are not yet in possession of the powerful organization and financial resources required, in which case they cannot carry through the general strike, or they have already sufficiently well organized, in which case they do not need the general strike. This reasoning is so simple and at first glance so irrefutable that, for a quarter century, it has rendered excellent service to the modern labor movement as a logical weapon against the anarchist phantom and as a means of carrying out the idea of political struggle to the widest circles of the workers. The enormous strides taken by the labor movement in all capitalist countries during the last 25 years are the most convincing evidence of the value of the tactics of political struggle, which were insisted upon by Marx and Engels in opposition to Bakuninism and German social democracy, in its position of vanguard of the entire international labor movement, it is not in the least the direct product of the consistent and energetic application of these tactics. The 1905 Russian Revolution has now effected a radical revision of the above piece of reasoning. For the first time in the history of the class struggle, it has achieved a grandiose realization of the idea of the mass strike and, as we shall discuss later, has even matured the general strike and thereby opened a new epoch in the development of the labor movement. It does not, of course, follow from this that the tactics of political struggle recommended by Marx and Engels were false or that the criticism applied by them to anarchism was incorrect. On the contrary, it is the same train of ideas, the same method, the Engels-Marxian tactics, which lay at the foundation of the previous practice of the German social democracy, which now in the Russian Revolution are producing new factors and new conditions in the class struggle. 
The Russian Revolution, which is the first historical experiment on the model of the Mass Reich, does not merely provide no vindication of anarchism, but actually means the historical liquidation of anarchism. The sorry existence to which this cerebral tendency was condemned in recent decades by the powerful development of social democracy in Germany may, to a certain extent, be explained by the exclusive domination and long duration of the parliamentary period. A tendency patterned entirely upon the quote, first blow, unquote, and quote, direct action, unquote, a tendency, quote, revolutionary, unquote, in the most naked, pitchfork sense, can only temporarily languish in the calm of the parletarian day and, on a return of the period of direct open struggle, can come to life again and unfold its inherent strength. Russia, in particular, appeared to have become the experimental field for the heroic deeds of anarchism, a country in which the proletariat had absolutely no political rights and extremely weak organizations, a many-colored complex of various sections of the population, a chaos of conflicting interests, a low standard of education among the masses of the people, extreme brutality, and the use of violence on the part of the prevailing regime, all of this seemed as if created to raise anarchism to a sudden, if perhaps short-lived, power. And finally, Russia was the historical birthplace of anarchism. But the fatherland of Bakunin was to become the burial place of his teachings. Not only did and do the anarchists in Russia not stand at the head of the mass strike movement, not only does the whole political leadership of revolutionary action and also of the mass strike line the hands of the social democratic organizations, which are bitterly opposed as, quote, bourgeois parties, unquote, by Russian anarchists, or partly in the hands of such socialist organizations as are more or less influenced by the social democracy and more or less approximate to it, such as the terrorist party, the socialist revolutionaries. But the anarchists simply do not exist as a serious political tendency in the Russian Revolution. Only in a small Lithuanian town with particularly difficult conditions, a confused medley of different nationalities among the workers, an extremely scattered condition of small-scale industry, a very severely oppressed proletariat, in Bialystok is among the seven or eight different revolutionary groups, a handful of half-grown, quote, anarchists, unquote, who promote confusion and bewilderment among the workers to the best of their ability, and lastly in Moscow, and perhaps in two or three other towns, a handful of people of this ilk make themselves noticeable. But apart from these few, quote, revolutionary, unquote, groups, what is the actual role of anarchism in the Russian Revolution? It has become the sign of the common thief and plunderer. A large proportion of the innumerable thefts and acts of plunder of private persons are carried out under the name of anarchist communism. Acts that rise up like a troubled wave against the revolution in every period of depression and in every period of temporary defensive. Anarchism has become in the Russian Revolution not the theory of the struggling proletariat, but the ideological signboard of the counter-revolutionary lumpen proletariat, who, like a school of sharks, swarm in the wake of the battleship of the revolution, and therewith the historical career of anarchism is well-nigh ended. On the other hand, the mass strike in Russia has been realized not as a means of evading the political struggle of the working class, and especially of parliamentarianism, not as in the means of jumping suddenly in the social revolution by means of a theatrical coup, but as a means, firstly, of creating for the proletariat the conditions of the daily political struggle, and especially of parliamentarianism. The revolutionary struggle in Russia, in which mass strikes are the most important weapon, is, by the working people, and above all by the proletariat, conducted for those political rights and conditions whose necessity and importance in the struggle for the emancipation of the working class, Marx and Engels first pointed out, and in opposition to anarchism, fought for with all their might in the international. Thus has historical dialectics, the rock on which the whole teaching of Marxian socialism rests, brought it about that today anarchism, with which the idea of the mass strike is indissolubly associated, has itself come to be opposed to the mass strike in practice, while on the contrary, the mass strike that, as the opposite of the political activity of the proletariat, was combated appears today as the most powerful weapon of the struggle for political rights. 
If, therefore, the Russian Revolution makes imperative a fundamental revision of the old standpoint of Marxism on the question of the mass strike, it is once again Marxism whose general method and points of view have thereby, in new form, carried off the prize. The Moor's beloved can only die by the hand of the Moor. Chapter 2. The Mass Strike, a Historical and Not an Artificial Product The first revision of the question of the mass strike that results from the experience of Russia relates to the general conception of the problem. Till the present time, the zealous advocates of a, quote, attempt with the mass strike, unquote, in Germany of the stamp of Bernstein, Eisner, etc., and also the strongest opponents of such an attempt as represented in the trade union camp by, for example, Bombelberg, Stand, when all is said and done, on the same conception and that is the anarchist one. The apparent polar opposites do not mutually exclude each other, but, as always, condition, and at the same time, supplement each other. For the anarchist mode of thought is direct speculation on the, quote, great clatter dash, unquote, on the social revolution merely as an external and inessential characteristic. According to it, what is essential is the whole abstract, unhistorical view of the mass strike, and for all of the conditions of the proletarian struggle generally. For the anarchist, there exist only two things as material suppositions of his, quote, revolutionary, unquote, speculation. First, imagination, and second, goodwill and courage to rescue humanity from the existing capitalist veil of tears. This fanciful mode of reasoning 60 years ago gave the result that the mass strike was the surest and easiest means of springing into the better social future. The same mode of reasoning recently gave the result that the trade union struggle was the only real, quote, direct action of the masses, unquote, and also the only real revolutionary struggle, which is well known, is the latest notion of the French and Italian, quote, syndicalists, unquote. The fatal thing for anarchism has always been that the methods of struggle improvised in the air were not only a reckoning without their host, that is, they were purely utopian, but that they, while not reckoning in the least with the despised evil reality, unexpectedly became in this evil reality practical assistance to the reaction, where previously they had only been, for the most part, revolutionary speculations. On the same ground of abstract ahistorical methods of observation stand those today who would, in the manner of a board of directors, put the mass strike in Germany on the calendar on an appointed day, and those who, like the participants in the trade union congress at Cologne, would by prohibition of, quote, propaganda, unquote, eliminate the problem of the mass strike from the face of the earth. Both tendencies proceed on the common, pure anarchistic assumption that the mass strike is a purely technical means of struggle, which can be, quote, decided, unquote, at pleasure and strictly according to conscience, or, quote, forbidden, unquote, a kind of pocket knife that can be kept in the pocket clasped ready for any emergency, and according to the decision, can be unclasped and used. The opponents of the mass strike do indeed claim for themselves the merit of taking into consideration the historical groundwork and the material conditions of the present situation in Germany, in opposition to the, quote, revolutionary romanticists, unquote, who hover in the air and do not at any point reckon with the hard realities and the possibilities and impossibilities. Quote, facts and figures, figures and facts, unquote, they cry, like Mr. Gadgrind in Dickens' Hard Times. What the trade union opponent of the mass strike understands by the, quote, historical basis, unquote, and, quote, material conditions, unquote, is two things. On the one hand, the weakness of the proletariat, and on the other hand, the strength of the Prussian-German militarism. The inadequate organization of the workers and the imposing Prussian bayonet, these are the facts and figures upon which these trade union leaders base their practical policy in the given case. Now, while it is quite true that the trade union cash box and the Prussian bayonet are material and very historical phenomena, but the conception based upon them is not historical materialism in Marx's sense, but a policeman-like materialism in the sense of Pukhammer. 
The representatives of the Capitol's police state reckon much, and indeed exclusively, with the occasional real power of the organized proletariat, as well as with the material might of the bayonet. And from the comparative example of these two rows of figures, the comforting conclusion is always drawn that the revolutionary labor movement is produced by individual demagogues and agitators, and that therefore there is in the prisons of bayonets an adequate means of subduing the unpleasant, quote, passing phenomena, unquote. The class-conscious German workers have at last grasped the humor of the policeman-like theory that the whole modern labor movement is an artificial, arbitrary product of a handful of conscienceless, quote, demagogues and agitators, unquote. It is exactly the same conception, however, that finds expression when two or three worthy comrades unite in a voluntary column of night watchmen in order to warn the German working class against the dangerous agitation of a few, quote, revolutionary romanticists, unquote, and their, quote, propaganda of the mass strike, unquote, or when, on the other side, a noisy indignation campaign is engineered by those who, by means of, quote, confidential, unquote, agreements between the executive of the party and the general commission of the trade unions, believe they can prevent the outbreak of the mass strike in Germany. If it depended on the inflammatory propaganda of revolutionary romanticists or on confidential or public decisions of the party direction, then we should not even yet have had in Russia a single serious mass strike. In no country in the world, as I pointed out in March 1905, in the Shashis Tung, was the mass strike so little, quote, propagated, unquote, or even discussed as in Russia. And the isolated examples of decisions and agreements of the Russian party executive, which really sought to proclaim the mass strike of their own accord, as, for example, the last attempt in August of this year after the dissolution of the Duma, are almost valueless. If, therefore, the Russian Revolution teaches us anything, it teaches us above all that the mass strike is not artificially made, not decided at random, not propagated, but that it is a historical phenomenon, which at any given moment results from social conditions with historical inevitability. It is not, therefore, by abstract speculations on the possibility or impossibility, the utility or the injuriousness of the mass strike, but only by an examination of those factors and social conditions out of which the mass strike grows in the present phase of the class struggle. In other words, it is not by subjective criticism of the mass strike from the standpoint of what is desirable, but only by objective investigation of the sources of the mass strike from the standpoint of what is historically inevitable, that the problem can be grasped or even discussed. In the unreal sphere of abstract logical analysis, it can be shown with exactly the same force on either side that the mass strike is absolutely impossible and sure to be defeated, and that it is possible and that its triumph cannot be questioned. And therefore the value of the evidence led on each side is exactly the same, and that is nil. Therefore, the fear of the quote propagation unquote of the mass strike, which has even led to formal anathemas against the persons alleged to be guilty of this crime, is solely the product of the droll confusion of persons. It is just as impossible to propagate the mass strike as an abstract means of struggle as it is to propagate the revolution. Revolution, like mass strike, signifies nothing but an external form of class struggle, which can have sense and meaning only in connection with the definite political situations. If anyone were to undertake to make the mass strike generally, as a form of proletarian action, the object of methodological agitation, and to go house to house canvassing with this idea in order to gradually win the working class to it, it would be as idle and profitless and absurd an occupation as it would be to make the idea of the revolution or of the fight at the barricades the object of a special agitation. The mass strike has now become the center of the lively interest of the German and international working class because it is a new form of struggle, and such is the sure symptom of a thoroughgoing internal revolution in the relations of the classes and in the conditions of the class struggle. 
It is a testimony to the sound revolutionary instinct and to the quick intelligence of the mass of the German proletariat that in spite of the obstinate resistance of their trade union leaders, they are applying themselves to this new problem with such keen interest. But it does not meet the case, in the presence of this interest and of this fine intellectual thirst and desire for revolutionary deeds on the part of the workers, to treat them to abstract mental gymnastics on the possibility or impossibility of the mass strike. They should be enlightened on the development of the Russian Revolution, the international significance of that revolution, and the sharpening of class antagonisms in Western Europe, the wider political perspectives of the class struggle in Germany, and the role and task of the masses in the coming struggles. Only in this form will the discussion on the mass strike lead to the widening of the intellectual horizon of the proletariat, to the sharpening of their way of thinking, and to the stealing of their energy. Viewed from this standpoint, however, the criminal proceedings desired by the enemies of quote, revolutionary romanticism, unquote, appear in all their absurdity because, in treating of the problem, one does not adhere strictly to the text of the Jenner Resolution. The quote, practical politicians, unquote, agree to this resolution if need be, because they couple the mass strike chiefly with the fate of universal suffrage, from which it follows that they can believe two things first, that the mass strike is of a purely defensive character, and second, that the mass strike is even subordinate to the parliamentarianism, that is, has been turned into a mere appendage of parliamentarianism. But the real kernel of the Jenner resolution in this connection is that in the present position of Germany, an attempt on the part of the prevailing reaction on the parliamentary vote would in all probability be the moment for the introduction of, and the signal for, a period of stormy political struggles in which the mass strike as a means of struggle in Germany might well come into use for the first time. But to seek to narrow and to artificially smother the social importance and to limit the historical scope of the mass strike as a phenomenon and as a problem of the class struggle by the wording of a Congress resolution is an undertaking for that short-sightedness can only be compared with the veto on discussion of the Trade Union Congress at Cologne. In the resolution of the Jena Congress, German social democracy has officially taken notice of the fundamental change that the Russian Revolution has effected in the international conditions of the proletarian class struggle and has announced its capacity for revolutionary development and its power of adaptability to the new demands of the coming phase of the class struggle. Therein lies the significance of the Jena Resolution. As for the practical application of the mass strike in Germany, history will decide that as it decided it in Russia. History in which German social democracy with its decision is, it is true, an important factor, but at the same time, only one factor among many. Chapter 3 Development of the Mass Strike Movement in Russia The mass strike, as it appears for the most part in the discussion in Germany, is a very clear and simply thought out, sharply sketched, isolated phenomenon. It is the political mass strike exclusively that is spoken of. What is meant by it is a single grand rising of the industrial proletariat springing from some political motive of the highest importance and undertaken on the basis of an opportune and mutual understanding on the part of the controlling authorities of the party and the trade unions, and carried through in the spirit of party discipline and in perfect order, and in still more perfect order brought to the directing committees as a signal given at the proper time, by which committees the regulation of support, the cost, the sacrifice, in a word, the whole material balance of the mass strike is exactly determined in advance. Now, when we compare this theoretical scheme with the real mass strike, as it appeared in Russia five years ago, we are compelled to say that this representation, which in the German discussion occupies the central position, hardly corresponds to a single one of the many mass strikes that have taken place, and on the other hand that the mass strike in Russia displays such a multiplicity of the most varied forms of action that it is altogether impossible to speak of quote the unquote mass strike of an abstract schematic mass strike. All the factors of the mass strike, as well as its character, are not only different in the different towns and districts of the country, 
but its general character is often changed in the course of the revolution. The mass strike has passed through a definite history in Russia, and is passing still further through it. Who, therefore, speaks of the mass strike in Russia must, above all things, keep its history before his eyes. The present official period, so to speak, of the Russian Revolution is justly dated from the rising of the proletariat on January 22, 1905, when the demonstration of 200,000 workers ended in a frightful bloodbath before the Tsar's palace. The bloody massacre in St. Petersburg was, as is well known, the signal for the outbreak of the first gigantic series of mass strikes, which spread over the whole of Russia within a few days, and which carried the call to action of the revolution from St. Petersburg to every corner of the empire and among the widest sections of the proletariat. But the St. Petersburg Rising of January 22nd was only the critical moment of a mass strike that the proletariat of the Tsar's capital had previously entered upon in January 1905. The January mass strike was without doubt carried through under the immediate influence of the gigantic general strike that in December 1904 broke out in the Caucasus, in Baku, and for a long time kept the whole of Russia in suspense. The events of December in Baku were on their part only the last and powerful ramification of those tremendous mass strikes which, like a periodic earthquake, shook the whole of South Russia, and whose prologue was the mass strike in Batumi in the Caucasus in March 1902. The first mass strike movement in the continuous series of present revolutionary eruptions is finally separated by five or six years from the great general strike of the textile workers in St. Petersburg in 1896 and 1897. And if this movement is apparently separated from the present revolution by a few years of apparent stagnation and strong reaction, everyone who knows the interpolitical development of the Russian proletariat to their present stage of class consciousness and revolutionary energy will realize that the history of the present period of the mass struggles begins with those general strikes in St. Petersburg. They are therefore important for the problems of the mass strike because they already contain, in the germ, all the principal factors of later mass strikes. Again, the St. Petersburg General Strike of 1896 appears as a purely economic partial wage struggle. Its causes were the intolerable working conditions of the spinners and weavers in St. Petersburg, a working day of 13, 14, or 15 hours, miserable piecework rates, and a whole series of contemptible chicaneries on the part of the employers. This condition of things, however, was patiently endured by workers for a long time until an apparently trivial circumstance filled the cup to overflowing. The coronation of the present Tsar, Nicholas II, which had been postponed for two years for fear of the revolutionaries, was celebrated in May 1896, and on that occasion the St. Petersburg employees displayed their patriotic zeal by giving their workers three days of compulsory holidays, for which, curious to relate, they did not desire to pay their employees. The workers, angered by this, began to move. After a conference of about 300 of the intelligent workers, in the Ekaterinhof Garden, a strike was decided upon, and the following demands were formulated. First, payment of wages for the coronation holidays. Second, a working day of 10 hours. Third, increased rates for piecework. This happened on May 24th. In a week, every weaving and spinning establishment was at a standstill, and 40,000 workers were in the general strike. Today, this event, measured by the gigantic mass strike of the revolution, may appear a little thing. In the political polar rigidity of the Russia of that time, a general strike was something unheard of. It was even a complete revolution in miniature. There began, of course, the most brutal persecution. About 1,000 workers were arrested and the general strike was suppressed. Here already we see all the fundamental characteristics of the later mass strikes. The next occasion of the movement was wholly accidental, even unimportant, its outbreak elementary. But in the success of the movement, the fruits of the agitation, extending over several years, 
of the social democracy were seen, and in the course of the general strike, the social democratic agitators stood at the head of the movement, directed it, and used it to stir up revolutionary agitation. Furthermore, the strike was outwardly a mere economic struggle for wages, but the attitude of the government and the agitation of the social democracy made it a political phenomenon of the first rank. And lastly, the strike was suppressed, the workers suffered a, quote, defeat, unquote, but in January of the following year, the textile workers of St. Petersburg repeated the general strike once more, and this time achieved a remarkable success. The legal introduction of a working day of 11 hours throughout the whole of Russia. What was nevertheless a much more important result was this. Since that first general strike of 1896, which was entered upon without a trace of organization or strike funds, an intensive trade union fight began in Russia proper that spread from St. Petersburg to the other parts of the country, and opened up entirely new vistas to social democratic agitation and organization, through which, in the apparently death-like peace of the following period, the revolution was prepared by underground work. The outbreak of the Caucasian strike in March 1902 was apparently as accidental and as much due to pure economic partial causes, although produced by quite other factors, as that of 1896. It was connected with the serious industrial and commercial crisis that in Russia was the precursor of the Japanese War, which, combined, were the most powerful factors of the nascent revolutionary ferment. The crisis produced an enormous mass of unemployment that nourished the agitation among the proletarian masses, and therefore the government, to restore tranquility among the workers, undertook to transport the, quote, superfluous hands, unquote, in batches to their respective home districts. One such measure, which was to affect about 400 petroleum workers, called forth a math protest in Batumi, which led to demonstrations, arrests, a massacre, and finally to a political trial in which the purely economic and partial affair suddenly became a political and revolutionary event. The reverberation of the holy, quote, fruitless, unquote, expiring and suppressed strike in Batumi was a series of revolutionary mass demonstrations of workers in Nizhny Novgorod, Saratov, and other towns, and therefore a mighty surge forward of the general wave of the revolutionary movement. Already in November 1902, the first genuine revolutionary echo followed in the shape of a general strike at Rostov-on-Don. Disputes about the rates of pay in the workshops of the Vladikavkaz railway gave the impetus to this movement. The management sought to reduce wages and therefore the Don Committee of Social Democracy issued a proclamation with a summons to strike for the following demands. A nine-hour day, increase of wages, abolition of fines, dismissal of obnoxious engineers, etc. Entire railway workshops participated in the strike. Presently, all other industries joined in and suddenly an unprecedented state of affairs prevailed in Rostov. All industrial work was at a standstill, and every day monster meetings of 15,000 to 20,000 were held in the open air, sometimes surrounded by a cordon of Cossacks, at which for the first time social democratic popular speakers appeared publicly. Inflammatory speeches on socialism and political freedom were delivered and received with immense enthusiasm and revolutionary appeals were distributed by tens of thousands of copies. In the midst of rigid absolutist Russia, the proletariat of Rostov won for the first time the right of assembly and freedom of speech by storm. It goes without saying that there was a massacre here. The disputes over wages in the Vladikavkaz railway workshops grew in a few days into a political general strike and a revolutionary street battle. As an echo to this, there followed immediately a general strike at the station of Tchortskaya on the same railway. Here too a massacre took place and also a trial, and thus even Chichortskaya has taken its place in the indissoluble chain of the factors of the revolution. The spring of 1903 gave the answer to the defeated strikes in Rostov and Chichortskaya. The whole south of Russia in May, June, and July was aflame. Baku, Tiflis, Batumi, Elisavikgard, Odessa, Kiev, 
Nikolaev, and Ekaterinoslav were in a general strike in the literal meaning of those words. But here again the movement did not arise on any preconceived plan from one another. It flowed together from individual points and each one from different causes and in a different form. The beginning was made in Baku where several partial wage struggles in individual factories and departments culminated in a general strike. In Tiflis, the strike was begun by 2,000 commercial employees who had a working day from 6 o'clock in the morning to 11 at night. On the 4th of July, they all left their shops and made a circuit of the town to demand from the proprietors of the shops that they close their premises. The victory was complete. The commercial employees won a working day from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening, and they were immediately joined by all the factories, workshops, and offices, etc. The newspapers did not appear, and tramway traffic could not be carried on under military protection. In Elisavagrad, on July 4th, a strike began in all the factories with purely economic demands. These were mostly conceded, and the strike ended on the 14th. Two weeks later, however, it broke out again. The bakers this time gave the word, and the bricklayers, the joiners, the dyers, the mill workers, and finally all factory workers joined them. In Odessa, the movement began with a wage struggle in the course of which the quote legal unquote workers' union, founded by the government agents according to the program of the famous gender arm Zubatov, was developed. Historical dialectics had again seized the occasion to play one of its malicious little pranks. The economic struggles of the earlier period, among them the great St. Petersburg general strike of 1896, had misled Russian social democracy into exaggerating the importance of so-called economics, and in this way the ground had been prepared among the workers for the demagogic activities of Zubatov. After a time, however, the great revolutionary stream turned round the little ship with the false flag and compelled it to ride right at the head of the revolutionary proletarian flotilla. The Zubatovian unions gave the signal for the great general strike in Odessa in the spring of 1904, as for the general strike in St. Petersburg in January 1905. The workers of Odessa, who were not to be deceived by the appearance of friendliness on the part of the government for the workers, and of its sympathy with purely economic strikes, suddenly demanded proof by example, and compelled the Zubatovian quote, workers' union, unquote, in a factory, to declare a strike for very moderate demands. They were immediately thrown on the streets, and when they demanded the protection of the authorities that was promised them by their leader, the gentlemen vanished and left the workers in the wildest excitement. The Social Democrats at once placed themselves at the head of affairs, and the strike movement extended to other factories. On the first day of July, 2,500 dockers struck work for an increase of wages from 80 kopecks to 2 rubles, and the shortening of the workday by half an hour. On the 16th of July, the seamen joined the movement. On the 13th, the tramway staff began a strike. Then a meeting took place of all the strikers, 7,000 or 8,000 men. They formed a procession that went from factory to factory, growing like an avalanche and presently a crowd of 40,000 to 50,000 betook themselves to the docks in order to bring all the work there to a standstill. A general strike soon reigned throughout the whole city. In Kiev, a strike began in the railway workshops on July 21st. Here also the immediate cause was miserable conditions of labor, and wage demands were presented. On the following day, the foundrymen followed the example. On July 23rd, an incident occurred that gave the signal for the general strike. During the night, two delegates of the railwaymen were arrested. The strikers immediately demanded their release, and as this was not conceded, they decided not to allow trains to leave the town. At the station, all the strikers with their wives and families sat down on the railway track, a sea of human beings. They were threatened with rifle salvos. The workers bared their breast and cried, quote, shoot, unquote. A salvo was fired into the defenseless heated crowd, and 30 to 40 corpses, among them women and children, remained on the ground. On this becoming known, the whole town of Kiev went on strike on the same day. 
The corpses of the murdered workers were raised on high by the crowd and carried round in a mass demonstration. Meetings, speeches, arrests, isolated street fights. Kiev was in the midst of the revolution. The movement was soon at an end, but the printers had won a shortening of the working day by one hour and a wage increase of one ruble. In a yeast factory, the eight-hour day was introduced. The railway workshops were closed by order of the ministry. Other departments continued partial strikes for their demands. In Nikolev, the general strike broke out under the immediate influence of news from Odessa, Baku, Batumi, and Tiflis, in spite of the opposition of the Social Democratic Committee, who wanted to postpone the outbreak of the movement till the time came when the military should have left the town for maneuvers. The masses refused to hold back. One factory made a beginning, the strikes went from one workshop to another, the resistance of the military only poured oil on the fire. Mass processions with revolutionary songs were formed in which all workers, employees, tramway officials, men and women took part. The cessation of work was complete. In Ekaterinoslav, the bakers came out on strike on August 5th, on the 7th the men in the railway workshops, and then all other factories on August 8th. Tramway traffic stopped, and the newspapers did not appear. Thus the colossal general strike in South Russia came into being in the summer of 1903. By many small channels of partial economic struggle and little, quote, accidental, unquote, occurrences, it flowed rapidly to a raging sea and changed the entire south of the Tsarist Empire for some weeks into a bizarre revolutionary workers' republic. Brotherly embraces, cries of delight and enthusiasm, songs of freedom, merry laughter, humor, and joy were seen and heard in the crowd of many thousands of persons which surged through the town from morning till evening. The mood was exalted, and one could almost believe that a new, better life was beginning on the earth a most solemn and at the same time an idyllic moving spectacle. So wrote at the time the correspondent of the liberal Osbo Bozdeny of Peter Struve. The year 1904 brought with it war, and for a first time, an interval of quiet in the mass strike movement. At first, a troubled wave of, quote, patriotic, unquote, demonstrations arranged by the police authorities spread over the country. The, quote, liberal, unquote, bourgeois society was for the first time being struck to the ground by the czarist official chauvinism. But soon the Social Democrats took possession of the arena. Revolutionary workers' demonstrations were opposed to the demonstrations of the patriotic lumpen proletariat, which were organized under police patronage. At last, the shameful defeats of the Tsarist army woke the liberal society from its lethargy. Then began the era of democratic congresses, banquets, speeches, addresses, and manifestos. Absolutism, temporarily suppressed through the disgrace of war, gave full scope to these gentlemen, and by and by they saw everything in rosy colors. For six months, bourgeois liberalism occupied the center of the stage, and the proletariat remained in the shadows. But after a long depression, absolutism again roused itself. The Camarilla gathered all its strength, and by a single powerful movement of the Cossack's heel, the whole liberal movement was driven into a corner. Banquets, speeches, and congresses were prohibited out of hand as, quote, intolerable presumption, unquote, and liberalism suddenly found itself at the end of its tether. But exactly at the point where liberalism was exhausted, the action of the proletariat began. In December 1904, the great general strike, due to unemployment, broke out in Baku. The working class was again on the field of battle. A speech was forbidden and rendered impossible. Action began. In Baku, for some weeks in the midst of the general strike, the Social Democrats ruled as absolute masters of the situation, and the peculiar events of December in the Caucasus would have caused an immense sensation if they had not been so quickly put in the shade by the rising tide of the revolution that they themselves had set into motion. The fantastic confused news of the general strike in Baku had not reached all parts of the Tsarist Empire when in January 1905, the mass strike in St. Petersburg broke out. 
Here also, as is well known, the immediate cause was trivial. Two men employed in the Putilov works were discharged on account of their membership in the legal Zubatovian Union. This measure called forth a solidarity strike on January 16th of the whole of the 12,000 employees in this works. The Social Democrats seized the occasion of the strike to begin a lively agitation for the extension of the demands and set forth demands for the eight-hour day, the right of combination, freedom of speech and of the press, etc. The unrest among the Putilov workers communicated itself quickly to the remainder of the proletariat, and in a few days, 140,000 workers were on strike. Joint conferences and stormy discussions led to the working out of that proletarian character of bourgeois freedom with the eight-hour day at its head, with which, on January 22nd, 200,000 workers, led by Father Gapon, marched to the Tsar's palace. The conflict of the two Pudilov workers who had been subjected to disciplinary punishment had changed within a week into the prologue of the most violent revolution in modern times. The events that followed upon this are well known. The bloodbath in St. Petersburg called forth gigantic mass strikes and a general strike in the month of January and February, and all the industrial centers and towns in Russia, Poland, Lithuania, the Baltic provinces, the Caucasus, Siberia, from north to south and east to west. On closer inspection, however, it can be seen that the mass strike was appearing in other forms than those of the previous period. Everywhere at that time, the social democratic organizations went before with appeals. Everywhere revolutionary solidarity with the St. Petersburg proletariat was expressly stated as the cause and aim of the general strike. Everywhere, at the same time, there were demonstrations, speeches, conflicts with the military. But even here, there was no predetermined plan, no organized action, because the appeals of the parties could scarcely keep pace with the spontaneous risings of the masses. The leader scarcely had time to formulate the watchwords of the onrushing crowd of the proletariat. Furthermore, the earlier mass and general strikes had originated from individual coalescing wage struggles, which, in the general temper of the revolutionary situation, and under the influence of the social democratic agitation, rapidly became political demonstrations. The economic factor and the scattered condition of trade unionism were the starting point. All embracing class action and political direction the result, the movement was now reversed. The general strikes of January and February broke out as unified revolutionary actions to begin with under the direction of the Social Democrats, but this action soon fell into an unending series of local, partial, economic strikes in separate districts, towns, departments, and factories. The entire spring of 1905 and into the middle of the summer, there fermented throughout the whole of the immense empire an uninterrupted economic strike of almost the entire proletariat against capital, a struggle that embraced, on the one hand, all the petty bourgeois and liberal professions, commercial employees, technicians, actors, and members of artistic professions, and on the other hand, penetrated to the domestic servants, the minor police officials, and even to the stratum of the lumpen proletariat, and simultaneously surged from the towns to the country districts, and even knocked at the iron gates of the military barracks. This is a gigantic, many-colored picture of a general arrangement of labor and capital that reflects all the complexity of social organization and of the political consciousness of every section and of every district, and the whole long scale runs from the regular trade union struggle of a tried and tested troop of the proletariat, drawn from large-scale industry, to the formless protest of a handful of rural proletarians, to the first slight stirrings of an agitated military garrison. From the well-educated and elegant revolting cuffs and white collars in the counting house of a bank, to the shy, bold murmurings of a clumsy meeting of dissatisfied policemen in a smoke-grimed, dark, and dirty guardroom. According to the theory of the lovers of, quote, orderly and well-disciplined, unquote, struggles, according to plan and scheme, according to those especially who always ought to know better from afar, quote, how it should have been done, unquote, the decay of the great political general strike of January 1905 into a number of economic struggles, 
was probably, quote, a great mistake, unquote, which crippled that action and changed it into a straw fire. But social democracy in Russia, which had taken part in the revolution, had not yet made it, and which had even to learn its law from its course itself, was at the first glance put out of countenance for a time by the apparently fruitless ebb of the storm flood of the general strike. History, however, which had made that, quote, great mistake, unquote, thereby accomplish, heedless of the reasoning of its officious schoolmaster, a gigantic work for the revolution that was as inevitable as it was, in its consequences, incalculable. The sudden general rising of the proletariat in January, under the powerful impetus of the St. Petersburg events, was outwardly a political act of the revolutionary declaration of war on absolutism. But this first general direct action reacted inwardly all the more powerfully, as it for the first time awoke class feeling and class consciousness in millions upon millions as if by an electric shock. And this awakening of class feeling expressed itself forthwith in the circumstances that the proletarian mass, counted by the millions, quite suddenly and sharply came to realize how intolerable was the social and economic existence that they had patiently endured for decades in the chains of capitalism. Thereupon, there began a spontaneous general shaking of and tugging at these chains. All the innumerable sufferings of the modern proletariat reminded them of the old bleeding wounds. Here was the eight-hour day fought for, their piecework was resisted, here were brutal foremen, quote, driven off, unquote, in a sack on a handcar. At another place, infamous systems of fines were fought against, everywhere better wages were striven for, and here and there the abolition of homework. Backward degraded occupations in large towns, small provincial towns, which had hitherto dreamed in an idyllic sleep, the village with its legacy from feudalism, all these suddenly awakened by the January lightning, bethought themselves of their rights and now sought feverishly to make up for their previous neglect. The economic struggle was not here really a decay, a dissipation of action, but merely a change of front, a sudden and natural alteration of the first general engagement with absolutism, in a general reckoning with capital, which in keeping with its character, assumed the form of individual, scattered wage struggles. Political class action was not broken in January by the decay of the general strike and the economic strikes, rather the reverse. After the possible content of political action in the given situation, and at the given stage by the revolution was exhausted, it broke, or rather changed, into economic action. In point of fact, what more could the general strike in January have achieved? Only complete thoughtlessness could be expected that absolutism could be destroyed at one blow by a single, quote, long-drawn, unquote, general strike after the anarchist plan. Absolutum in Russia must be overthrown by the proletariat. But in order to be able to overthrow it, the proletariat requires a high degree of political education, of class consciousness, and organization. All these conditions cannot be fulfilled by pamphlets and leaflets, but only by the living political school, by the fight and in the fight, in the continuous course of the revolution. Further, absolutism cannot be overthrown at any desired moment in which only adequate, quote, exertion, unquote, and, quote, endurance, unquote, is necessary. The fall of absolutism is merely the outer expression of the inner social and class development of Russian society. Before absolutism can, and so that it may be overthrown, the bourgeois Russia in its interior, and in its modern class divisions, must be formed. That requires the drawing together of the various social layers and interests, besides the education of the proletarian revolutionary parties, and not less of the liberal, radical, petty bourgeois, conservative, and reactionary parties, it requires self-consciousness, self-knowledge, and the class consciousness not merely of the layers of the people, but also of the layers of the bourgeoisie. But this also can be achieved and come to fruition in no way but in the struggle, in the process of revolution itself, through the actual school of experience, in collision with the proletariat, as well as with one another, in incessant mutual friction. This class division and class maturity of bourgeois society, 
as well as its action in the struggle against absolutism, is on the one hand hampered and made difficult by the peculiar leading rule of the proletariat and, on the other hand, is spurred on and accelerated. The various undercurrents of the social process of the revolution cross one another, check one another, and increase the internal contradictions of the revolution, but in the end accelerate and thereby render still more violent its eruptions. This apparently simple and purely mechanical problem may therefore be stated thus. The overthrow of absolutism is a long, continuous social process, and its solution demands a complete undermining of the soil of society. The uppermost part be placed lowest and the lowermost part highest. The apparent, quote, order, unquote, must be changed to a chaos. And the apparently, quote, anarchistic, unquote, chaos must be changed into a new order. Now, in this process of the social transformation of the old Russia, not only the January lightning of the first general strike, but also the spring and summer thunderstorms that followed it, played an indispensable part. The embittered general relations of wage labor and capital contributed in equal measure to the drawing together of the various layers of the people and those of the bourgeoisie, to the class consciousness of the revolutionary proletariat, and to that of the liberal and conservative bourgeoisie. And just as the urban wage struggle contributed to the formation of a strong monarchist industrial party in Moscow, so the conflagration of the violent rural rising in Livonia led to the rapid liquidation of the famous aristocratic agrarian Zemsto liberalism. But at the same time, the period of the economic struggles of the spring and summer of 1905 made it possible for the urban proletariat, by means of active social democratic agitation and direction, to assimilate later all the lessons of the January prologue and to grasp clearly all the further tasks of the revolution. There was connected with this too another circumstance of an enduring social character, a general raising of the standard of life of the proletariat, economic, social, and intellectual. The January strikes of 1905 ended victoriously almost throughout. As proof of this, some data from the enormous, and for the most part still inaccessible, massive material may be cited here relating to a few of the most important strikes carried through in Warsaw, alone by the Social Democrats of Poland and Lithuania. In the great factories of the metal industry of Warsaw, Lil Pop Limited, Ran and Lowenstein, Rudski & Co., Bormann, Schweden Co., Hanke, Gerlach & Polst, Geisler Bros., Eberherd, Wolski & Co., Konrad and Yarenkiewicz Limited, Weber & Dewu, Iwadinski & Co., Wolonski Wireworks, Gosnisti & Co. Limited, Brunn & Son, Fragget, Norblin, Werner, Butch, Kennebrig Bros. Labor, Dittner Lamp Factory, Sierkowski, Wesk, 22 factories in all. The workers won after a strike of four to five weeks, starting January 25th through the 26th, a nine-hour day, a 25% increase of wages, and obtained various smaller concessions. In the large workshops of the timber industry of Warsaw, namely Karmansky, Dymaki, Grommel, Zerbinskik, Twemerowski, Horn, Devensey, Torkowski, Dobb, and Martins, 12 workshops in all, the strikes had won by the 23rd of February the nine-hour day, they were not satisfied with this, but insisted upon the eight-hour day, which they also won, together with an increase in wages, after a further strike of a week. The entire bricklaying industry began a strike on February 27th and demanded, in conformity with the watchword of social democracy, the eight-hour day. They won the ten-hour day on March 11th, together with an increase of wages for all categories, regular weekly payment of wages, etc. The painters, the cartwrights, the saddlers, and the smiths all won the eight-hour day without decrease of wages. The telephone workshop struck for 10 days and won the 8-hour day in an increase of wages of 10% to 15%. The large linen weaving establishment of Heel and Dietrich, 10,000 workers, after a strike lasting 9 weeks, obtained a decrease of the working day by 1 hour and a wage increase of 5% to 10%.
and similar results and endless variation were to be seen in the older branches of industry in Warsaw, Lodz, and Sosnovitz. In Russia proper, the eight-hour day was won in December 1904 by a few categories of oil workers in Baku, in May 1905 by the sugar workers of the Kiev district, in January 1905 all the printing works in Samara, where at the same time an increase of piecework rates was obtained and fines were abolished, in February in the factory in which medical instruments for the army are manufactured, in a furniture factory, and in the cartridge factory in St. Petersburg. Further, the eight-hour day was introduced in the mines of Vladivostok, in March in the government mechanical workshops dealing with the government stock, and in May among the employees of the Tiflis Electric Town Railway. In the same month, a working day of eight and a half hours was introduced in the large cotton weaving factory of Marasov, and at the same time the abolition of night work and a wage increase of 8% were won. In June, an eight-hour day and a few oil works in St. Petersburg and Moscow. In July, a working day of eight and a half hours among the smiths at the St. Petersburg docks. And in November, in all the private printing establishments of the town of Oral, and at the same time an increase of time rates of 20% and piecework rates of 100%, as well as the setting up of a conciliation board on which workers and employer were equally represented. The nine-hour day in all the railway workshops in February, in many government, military, and naval workshops, in most of the factories of the town of Bernask, in all the printing works of the towns of Poltava and Minsk, nine and a half hours in the shipyards, mechanical workshops, and foundries in the town of Nikolev, in June, after a general strike of waiters in Warsaw, in many restaurants and cafes, and at the same time a wage increase of 20% to 40% with a two-week holiday in the year. The 10-hour day in almost all the factories of the towns of Lodz, Sosnovitz, Riga, Kovno, Oval, Dorfat, Minsk, Kharkov, and the bakeries of Odessa, among the mechanics in Kishinev, at a few smelting works in St. Petersburg, in the match factories of Kovno, with an increase of wages of 10%, and all the government marine workshops and among all the dockers. The wage increases were in general smaller than the shortening of hours, but always more significant. In Warsaw in the middle of March 1905, a general increase of wages of 15% was fixed by the municipal factories department in the center of the textile industry. Ivanovo Vazenzek, the wage increase amounted to 7% to 15%. In Kovno, the increase affected 73% of the workers. A fixed minimum wage was introduced in some of the bakeries in Odessa, in the Neva shipbuilding yards in St. Petersburg, etc. It goes without saying that these concessions were withdrawn again, now here and now there. This, however, was only the cause of a renewed strife and led to still more bitter struggles for revenge, and thus the strike period of the spring of 1905 has of itself become the prologue to an endless series of ever-spreading and interlacing economic struggles that have lasted to the present day. In the period of the outward stagnation of the revolution, when the telegraph carried no sensational news from the Russian theater of war to the outside world, and when the West European laid aside his newspaper in disappointment with the remark there, quote, was nothing doing, unquote, in Russia, the great underground work of the revolution was in reality being carried on without cessation, day by day and hour by hour, in the very heart of the empire. The incessant intensive economic struggles affected, by rapid and abbreviated methods, the transition of capitalism from the stage of primitive accumulation, of patriarchal unmethodical methods of working to a highly modern, civilized one. At the present time, the actual working day in Russian industry leaves behind not only the Russian factory legislation, that is, the legal working day of 11 hours, but even the actual conditions of Germany. In most departments of large-scale industry in Russia, the 10-hour day prevails, which in Germany is declared in social legislation to be an unattainable goal. And what is more, that longed-for industrial constitutionalism for which there is so much enthusiasm in Germany, 
and for the sake of which the advocates of opportunist tactics would keep every keen wind from the stagnant waters of their all-suffering parliamentarianism, has already been born, together with political constitutionalism, in the midst of the revolutionary storm from the revolution itself. In actual fact, it is not merely a general raising of the standard of life or the cultural level of the working class that has taken place. The material standard of life as a permanent stage of well-being has no place in the revolution. Full of contradictions and contrasts, it brings simultaneously surprising economic victories and the most brutal acts of revenge on the part of the capitalist. Today the eight-hour day, and tomorrow wholesale lockouts and actual starvation for millions. The most precious because lasting thing in this rabid ebb and flow of the wave is its mental sediment. The intellectual cultural growth of the proletariat, which proceeds by fits and starts, and which offers an inviolable guarantee of their further irresistible progress in the economic as in the political struggle. And not only that, even the relations of the worker to the employer are turned around. Since the January general strike and the strikes of 1905 that followed upon it, the principle of the capitalist, quote, mastery of the house, unquote, is de facto abolished. In the larger factories of all important industrial centers, the establishment of workers' committees has, as if by itself, taken place, with which alone the employer negotiates and which decide all disputes. And finally, another thing, the apparently, quote, chaotic, unquote, strikes and the, quote, disorganized, unquote, revolutionary action after the January general strike are becoming the starting point for a feverish work of organization. Dame history, from afar, smilingly hoaxes the bureaucratic lay figures who keep grim watch at the gate over the fate of the German trade unions. The organizations which, as the indispensable hypothesis for an eventual German mass strike, should be fortified like an impregnable citadel, these organizations are in Russia, on contrary, already born from the mass strike. And while the guardians of the German trade unions for the most part fear that the organizations will fall in pieces in a revolutionary whirlwind, like rare porcelain, the Russian Revolution shows us exactly the opposite picture. From the whirlwind and the storm, out of the fire and glow of the mass strike and the street fighting rise again, like Venus from the foam, fresh, young, powerful, buoyant trade unions. Here again a little example, which, however, is typical of the whole empire. At the second conference of the Russian trade unions, which took place at the end of February 1906 in St. Petersburg, the representative of the Petersburg trade unions in his report on the development of trade union organizations said of the Tsar's capital, quote, January 22, 1905, which washed away the Gapon Union, was a turning point. The workers in large numbers have learned by experience to appreciate and understand the importance of organization, and that only they themselves can create these organizations. The first trade union, that of the printers, originated in direct connection with the January movement. The commission appointed to work out the tariffs framed the statutes, and on July 19th the union began its existence. Just about this time the union of office workers and bookkeepers was called into existence, unquote. In addition to those organizations, which extend almost openly, there arose from January to October 1905 semi-legal and illegal trade unions. To the former belonged, for example, the Union of Chemist Assistants and Commercial Employees. Among the illegal unions, special attention must be drawn to the Watchmakers Union, whose first secret session was held on April 24th. All attempts to convene a general open meeting were shattered on the obstinate resistance of the police and the employers in the form of the Chamber of Commerce. This mischance had not prevented the existence of the union. It held secret meetings of members on June 9th and August 14th, apart from the sessions of the executive of the union. The Tailors and Tailoresses Union was founded in 1905 at a meeting in a wood at which 70 tailors were present. 
After the question of forming the Union was discussed, a commission was appointed which was entrusted with the task of working out the statutes. All attempts of the commission to obtain a legal existence for the Union were unsuccessful. Its activities were confined to agitation and the enrolling of new members in the individual workshops. A similar fate was in store for the Shoemakers' Union. In July, a secret night meeting was convened in a wood near the city. Over 100 shoemakers attended, a report was read on the importance of trade unionism, on its history in Western Europe, and its tasks in Russia. It was then decided to form a trade union. A commission of 12 was appointed to work out the statutes and call a general meeting of shoemakers. The statutes were drawn up, but in the meantime, it had not been found possible to print them, nor had the general meeting been convened. These were the first difficult beginnings. Then came the October days, the Second General Strike, the Tsar's Manifesto of October 30th, and the brief, quote, Constitution period, unquote. The workers threw themselves with fiery zeal into the ways of political freedom in order to use it forthwith for the purpose of the work of organization. Besides daily political meetings, debates, and the formation of clubs, the development of trade unionism was immediately taken in hand. In October and November, 40 new trade unions appeared in St. Petersburg. Presently, a, quote, central bureau, unquote, that is, a trade union council was established, various trade union papers appeared, and since November, a central organ had also been published, the trade union. What was reported above concerning Petersburg was also true on the whole of Moscow and Odessa, Kiev and Nikolev, Saratov, and Voronezh, Samara, and Izini Novgorod, and all the larger towns of Russia to a still higher degree of Poland. The trade unions of different towns seek contact with one another and conferences are held. The end of the Constitution period and the return to reaction in December 1905 put a stop for the time being to the open widespread activity of the trade unions, but did not, however, altogether extinguish them. They operate as organizations in secret and occasionally carry on quite open wage struggles. A peculiar mixture of the legal and illegal condition of trade union life is being built up, corresponding to the highly contradictory revolutionary situation. But in the midst of the struggle, the work of organization is being more widely extended in a thoroughgoing, not to say pedantic, fashion. The trade unions of the social democracy of Poland and Lithuania, for example, which at the last Congress in July 1906 were represented by five delegates from a membership of 10,000, are furnished with the usual statutes, printed membership cards, adhesive stamps, etc. And the same bakers and shoemakers, engineers and printers of Warsaw and Lodz, who in June 1905 stood on the barricades and in December only awaited the word from Petersburg to begin street fighting, find time and are eager, between one mass strike and another, between prison and lockout, and under the conditions of a siege, to go into their trade union statutes and discuss them earnestly. These barricade fighters of yesterday and tomorrow have indeed more than once at meetings severely reprimanded their leaders and threatened them with withdrawal from the party because the unlucky trade union membership cards could not be printed quickly enough, in secret, printing works under incessant police persecution. This zeal and the earnestness continue to this day. For example, in the first two weeks of July 1906, 15 new trade unions appeared in Ekaterinoslav, six in Kostrama, several in Kiev, Poltava, Smolensk, Cherasky, Proskurov, down to the most insignificant provincial towns. In the session of the Moscow Trade Union Council of June 4th this year, after the acceptance of the reports of individual trade union delegates, it was decided, quote, that the trade unions should discipline their members and restrain from street rioting because the time is not considered opportune for the mass strike. In the face of possible provocation on the part of the government, care should be taken that the masses do not stream out into the streets, unquote. Finally, the council decided that if at any time one trade union began a strike, the other should hold back from any wages movement. 
most of the economic struggles are now directed by the trade unions. Thus, the great economic struggle that proceeded from the January general strike, and which has not ceased to the present day, has formed a broad background of the revolution from which, in ceaseless reciprocal action with the political agitation and the external events of the revolution, there ever arise here and there now isolated explosions and now great actions of the proletariat. Thus there flame up against this background, the following events one the other. At the May Day demonstration there was an unprecedented absolute general strike in Warsaw, which ended in a bloody encounter between the defenseless crowd and the soldiers. At Lodz in June a mass outing, which was scattered by the soldiers, led to a demonstration of 100,000 workers at the funeral of some of the victims of the brutal soldiery into a renewed encounter with the military, and finally on June 23rd, 24th, and 25th, passed into the first barricade fight in the Tsarist Empire. Similarly, in June, the first great revolt of the sailors of the Black Sea Fleet exploded in the harbor at Odessa from a trifling incident on board the armored vessel Potemkin, which reacted immediately on Odessa and Nikolaev in the form of a violent mass strike. As a further echo followed the mass strike in the sailors' revolts in Kronstadt, Libau, and Vladivostok. In the month of October, the grandiose experiment of St. Petersburg was made with the introduction of the eight-hour day. The General Council of Workers' Delegates decided to achieve the eight-hour day in a revolutionary manner. That means that on the appointed day, all the workers of Petersburg should inform their employers that they are not willing to work more than eight hours a day and should leave their places of work at the end of eight hours. The idea was the occasion of lively agitation, was accepted by the proletariat with enthusiasm and carried out, but very great sacrifices were not thereby avoided. Thus, for example, the eight-hour day meant an enormous fall in wages for the textile workers who had hitherto worked 11 hours, and that on a system of piecework. This, however, they willingly accepted. Within a week, the eight-hour day prevailed in every factory and workshop in Petersburg, and the joy of the workers knew no bounds. Soon, however, the employers, stupefied at first, prepared their defenses, everywhere they threatened to close their factories. Some of the workers consented to negotiate and obtain here a working day of 10 hours, and there one of 9 hours. The elite of the Petersburg proletariat, however, the workers in the government engineering establishments, remained unshaken, and a lockout ensued, which threw 45,000 to 50,000 men on the streets for a month. At the settlement of the eight-hour day movement was carried into the general strike of December, which the great lockout had hampered to a great extent. Meanwhile, however, the second tremendous general strike throughout the whole empire follows in October as a reply to the project of the Bulgian Duma, the strike to which the railway men gave the summons. This second great action of the proletariat already bears a character essentially different from that of the first one in January. The element of political consciousness plays a much bigger role. Here also, to be sure, the immediate occasion for the outbreak of the mass strike was a subordinate and apparently accidental thing, the conflict of railway men with the management over the pension fund. But the general rising of the industrial proletariat that followed upon it was conducted in accordance with clear political ideas. The prologue of the January strike was a procession to the Tsar to ask for political freedom. The watchword of the October strike ran away with the constitutional comedy of Tsarism. And thanks to immediate success of the general strike to the Tsar's manifesto of October 30th, the movement does not flow back on itself as in January, but rushes over outwardly in the eager activity of newly acquired political freedom. Demonstrations, meetings, a young press, public discussions, and bloody massacres is the end of the story, and thereupon new mass strikes and demonstrations, such as the stormy picture of the November and December days. In November, at the insistence of the Social Democrats in Petersburg, the first demonstrative mass strike is arranged as a protest demonstration against the bloody deeds and the proclamation, a state siege in Poland and Livonia.
The fermentation after the brief constitutional and the gruesome awakening finally leads in December to the outbreak of the third general mass strike throughout the empire. This time its course and its outcome are altogether different from those in the two earlier cases. Political action does not change in economic action as in January, but it no longer achieves a rapid victory as in October. The attempts of the Tsarist Camarilla with real political freedom are no longer made, and revolutionary action therewith, for the first time, and along its whole length, knocked against the strong wall of the physical violence of absolutism. By the logical internal development of progressive experience, the mass strike this time changes into an open insurrection, to arm barricades and street fighting in Moscow. The December days in Moscow closed the first eventful year of the revolution as the point in the ascending line of political action and of the mass strike movement. The Moscow events show a typical picture of the logical development and at the same time of the future of the revolutionary movement on the whole, their inevitable close in a general, open insurrection, which again on its part cannot come in any other way than through the school of a series of preparatory partial insurrections, which therefore meantime end in partial outward quote defeats unquote, and considered individually, may appear to be premature. The year 1906 brings elections to the Duma and the Duma incidents. The proletariat, from a strong revolutionary instinct and a clear knowledge of the situation, boycotts the whole Tsarist constitutional farce, and liberalism again occupies center stage for a few months. The situation of 1904 appears to have come again, a period of speeches instead of acts, and the proletariat for a time walk in the shadow in order to devote themselves more diligently to the trade union struggle and the work of the organization. The mass strikes are no longer spoken of, while the clattering rockets of liberal rhetoric are fired off day after day. At last, the Iron Curtain is torn down, the actors are dispersed, and nothing remains of the liberal rockets but smoke and vapor. An attempt of the Central Committee of the Russian Social Democracy to call forth a mass strike as a demonstration for the Duma and the reopening of the period of liberal speech-making falls absolutely flat. The role of the political mass strike alone is exhausted, but, at the same time, the transition of the mass strike into a general popular rising is not yet accomplished. The liberal episode is past, the proletarian episode is not yet begun. The stage remains empty for the time being. Chapter 4, The Interaction of the Political and the Economic Struggle We have attempted in the foregoing to sketch the history of the mass strike in Russia in a few strokes. Even a fleeting glance at this history shows us a picture that in no way resembles that one usually formed by discussions in Germany on the mass strike. Instead of the rigid and hollow scheme of an arid political action carried out by the decision of the highest committees and furnished with a plan and panorama, we see a bit of pulsating like of flesh and blood, which cannot be cut out of the large frame of the revolution, but is connected with all parts of the revolution by a thousand veins. The mass strike, as the Russian Revolution shows it to us, is such a changeable phenomenon that it reflects all phases of the political and economic struggle, all stages and factors of the revolution. Its adaptability, its efficiency, the factors of its origin are constantly changing. It suddenly opens new and wide perspectives on the revolution when it appears to have already arrived in a narrow pass, and where it is impossible for anyone to reckon upon it with any degree of certainty. It flows now like a broad billow over the whole kingdom, and now divides into a gigantic network of narrow streams. Now it bubbles forth from under the ground like a fresh spring, and now is completely lost under the earth. Political and economic strikes, mass strikes and partial strikes, demonstrative strikes and fighting strikes, general strikes of individual branches of industry, and general strikes in individual towns, peaceful wage struggles and street massacres, barricade fighting, all these run through one another, run side by side, cross one another, flow in and over one another, 
it is a ceaselessly moving, changing sea of a phenomena. And the law of motion of these phenomena is clear. It does not lie in the mass strike itself, nor in its technical details, but in the political and social proportions of the forces of the revolution. The mass strike is merely the form of the revolutionary struggle, and every disarrangement of the relations of the contending powers, in party development, in class division, in the position of counter-revolution, all this immediately influences the action of the strike in a thousand invisible and scarcely controllable ways. But strike action itself does not cease for a single moment. It merely alters its forms, its dimensions, its effect. It is the living pulse of the revolution, and at the same time its most powerful driving wheel. In a word, the mass strike, as shown to us in the Russian Revolution, is not a crafty method discovered by subtle reasoning for the purpose of making the proletarian struggle more effective, but the method of motion of the proletarian mass, the phenomenal form of the proletarian struggle in the revolution. Some general aspects may now be examined that may assist us in forming a correct estimate of the problem of the mass strike. 1. It is absurd to think of the mass strike as one act, one isolated action. The mass strike is rather the indication, the rallying idea, of a whole period of the class struggle lasting for years, perhaps for decades. Of the innumerable and highly varied mass strikes that have taken place in Russia during the last four years, the scheme of the mass strike was a purely political movement, begun and ended after a cut-and-dried plan, a short single act of one variety, only and at that a subordinate variety, pure demonstration strike. In the whole course of the five-year period, we see in Russia only a few demonstration strikes which, be it noted, were generally confined to single towns. Thus, the annual May Day general strike in Warsaw and Lodz in Russia proper on the 1st of May has not yet been celebrated to any appreciable extent by abstention from work, the mass strike in Warsaw on September 11, 1905, as a memorial service in the honor of the executed Marcy and Kasbrak, that of November 1905 in Petersburg as a protest demonstration against the declaration of a state of siege in Poland and Livonia, that of January 22, 1906 in Warsaw, Lodz, Zentichin, and in Dombrowa Coal Basin, as well as, in part, those in a few Russian towns as anniversary celebrations of the Petersburg bloodbath. In addition, in July 1906, a general strike in Tiflis as demonstration of sympathy with soldiers sentenced by court-martial on account of the military revolt, and finally, from the same cause, in September 1906, during the deliberations of the court-martial and revolt. All the above great and partial mass strikes and general strikes were not demonstration strikes, but fighting strikes. And as such, they originated from the most part spontaneously, in every case from specific local accidental causes, without planning undesignedly, and grew with elemental power into great movements. And then they did not begin on an, quote, orderly retreat, unquote, but turned now into economic struggles, now into street fighting, and now collapsed into themselves. In this general picture, the purely political demonstration strike plays quite a subordinate role, isolated small points in the midst of a mighty expanse. Thereby, temporarily considered, the following characteristic discloses itself. The demonstration strikes, which, in contradistinction to the fighting strikes, exhibit the greatest mass of party discipline, conscious direction, and political thought, and therefore must appear as the highest and most mature form of the mass strike, play in reality the greatest part in the beginnings of the movement. Thus, for example, the absolute cessation of work on May 1, 1905 in Warsaw, at the first instance of a decision of the Social Democrats, carried throughout in such an astonishing fashion, was an experience of great importance for the proletarian movement in Poland. In the same way, the sympathetic strike of the same year in Petersburg made a great impression as the first experiment of conscious, systematic mass action in Russia. 
Similarly, the, quote, trial mass strike, unquote, of the Hamburg comrades on January 17, 1906, will play a prominent part in the history of the future German mass strike as the first vigorous attempt with the much-disputed weapon, and also a very successful and convincingly striking test of the fighting temper and the lust for battle of the Hamburg working class. And just as surely will the period of the mass strike in Germany, when it has once begun in real earnest, lead of itself to a real general cessation of work on May 1st. The May Day Festival may naturally be raised to a position of honor as the first great demonstration under the aegis of the mass struggle. In this sense, the quote lame horse unquote, as the May Day Festival was termed at the Trade Union Congress at Cologne, still has a great future before it and an important part to play in the proletarian class struggle in Germany. But with the development of the earnest revolutionary struggle, the importance of such demonstrations diminishes rapidly. It is precisely those factors that objectively facilitate the realization of the demonstration strike, after a preconceived plan and at the party's word of command, namely, the growth of political consciousness and the training of the proletariat, made this kind of mass strike impossible. Today the proletariat in Russia, the most capable vanguard of the masses, does not want to know about mass strikes. The workers are no longer in a mood for jesting and will now think only of a serious struggle with all its consequences. And when, in the first great mass strike in January 1905, the demonstrative element, not indeed an intentional but more an instinctive spontaneous form, still played a great part. On the other hand, the attempt of the Central Committee of the Russian Social Democrats to call a mass strike in August as a demonstration for the dissolved Duma was shattered by, among other things, the positive disinclination of the educated proletariat to engage in weak half-actions and mere demonstrations. 2. When, however, we have in view the less important strike of the demonstrative kind, instead of the fighting strike as it represents in Russia, today the actual vehicle of proletarian action, we see still more clearly that it is impossible to separate the economic factors from one another. Here also the reality deviates from the theoretical scheme, and the pedantic representation of which the pure political mass strike is logically derived from, the trade union general strike as the ripest and highest stage, but at the same time is kept distinct from it, is shown to be absolutely false. This expressed not merely in the fact that the mass strikes, from the first great wage struggle of the Petersburg textile workers in 1896-97, to the last great mass strike in December 1905, passed imperceptibly from the economic field to the political, so that it is almost impossible to draw a dividing line between them. Again, every one of the great mass strikes repeats, so to speak, on a small scale, the entire history of the Russian mass strike, and begins with a pure economic, or at all events, a partial trade union conflict, and runs through all the stages to the political demonstration. The great thunderstorm of mass strikes in South Russia in 1902 and 1903 originated, as we have seen in Baku, from a conflict arising from the disciplinary punishment of the unemployed, in Rostov from disputes about wages, in the railway workshops, in Tiflis from a struggle of the commercial employees for reduction of working hours, in Odessa from a wage dispute in a single small factory. The January mass strike of 1905 developed from an internal conflict in the Pudilov works, the October strike from the struggle of the railway workers for a pension fund, and finally the December strike from the struggle of the postal and telegraph employees for the right of combination. The progress of the movement on the whole is not expressed in the circumstances that the economic initial stage is omitted, but much more in the rapidity with which all the stages to the political demonstration are run through, and in the extremity of the point to which the strikes move forward. But the movement on the whole does not proceed from the economic to the political struggle, nor even the reverse. Every great political mass action, after it has attained its political highest point, breaks up into a mass of economic strikes. And that applies not only to each of the great mass strikes, but also to the revolution as a whole. 
With the spreading, clarifying, and involution of the political struggle, the economic struggle not only does not recede, but extends, organizes, and becomes involved in equal measure. Between the two, there is the most complete reciprocal action. Every new onset and every fresh victory of the political struggle is transformed into a powerful impetus for the economic struggle, extending at the same time its external possibilities and intensifying the inner urge of the workers to better their position and their desire to struggle. After every foaming wave of political action, a fructifying deposit remains behind from which a thousand stocks of economic struggle shoot forth. And conversely, the workers' condition of ceaseless economic struggle with the capitalists keeps their fighting energy alive in every political interval. It forms, so to speak, the permanent fresh reservoir of the strength of the proletarian classes, from which the political fight ever renews its strength, and at the same time leads the indefatigable economic sappers of the proletariat at all times, now here and now there, to isolated sharp conflicts, out of which political conflicts on a large scale unexpectedly explode. In a word, the economic struggle is the transmitter from one political center to another, the political struggle and the periodic fertilization of the soil for the economic struggle. Cause and effect here continually change places, and thus the economic and the political factor in the period of the mass strike, now widely removed, completely separated, or even mutually exclusive, as a theoretical plan would have them, merely form the two interlacing sides of the proletarian class struggle in Russia, and their unity is precisely the mass strike. If the sophisticated theory proposes to make a clever logical dissection of the mass strike for the purpose of getting at the quote, purely political mass strike, unquote, it will by this dissection, as with any other, not perceive the phenomenon in its living essence, but will kill it altogether. 3. Finally, the events in Russia show us that the mass strike is inseparable from the revolution. The history of the Russian mass strike is the history of the Russian revolution, when, to be sure, the representatives of our German opportunism hear of, quote, revolution, unquote, they immediately think of bloodshed, street fighting, or powder and shot, and the logical conclusion, therefore, is the mass strike leads inevitably to the revolution, therefore we dare not have it. In actual fact, we see in Russia that almost every mass strike in the long run leads to an encounter with the armed guardians of the Tsarist order, and therein the so-called political strikes exactly resemble the larger economic struggle. The revolution, however, is something other and something more than bloodshed. In contradiction to the police interpretation, which views the revolution exclusively from the standpoint of street disturbances and rioting, that is, from the standpoint of, quote, disorder, unquote, the interpretation of scientific socialism sees in the revolution, above all, a thoroughgoing internal reversal of social class relations. And from this standpoint, an altogether different connection exists between revolution and mass strike in Russia, from that contained in the commonplace conception that the mass strike generally ends in bloodshed. We have seen above the inner mechanism of the Russian mass strike, which depends upon the ceaseless reciprocal action of the political and economic struggles. But this reciprocal action is conditioned during the revolutionary period. Only in the sultry air of the period of revolution can any partial little conflict between labor and capital grow into a general explosion. In Germany, the most violent, most brutal collisions between the workers and employers take place every year and every day without the struggle overleaping the bounds of the individual departments or individual towns concerned, or even those of individual factories. Punishment of organized workers in Petersburg and unemployment as in Baku, wage struggles as in Odessa, struggles for the right of accommodation as in Moscow, are the order of the day in Germany. No single one of these cases, however, changes suddenly into a common class action. And when they grow into isolated mass strikes, which have without question a political coloring, they do not bring about a general storm. The general strike of Dutch railwaymen, which died in spite of the warmest sympathy in the midst of the complete impassivity of the proletariat of the country, affords a striking proof of this.
And conversely, only in the period of revolution, when the social foundations and the walls of class society are shaken and subjected to a constant process of disarrangement, can any political class action of the proletariat arouse from their passive condition in a few hours whole sections of the working class who have hitherto remained unaffected, and this is immediately and naturally expressed in a stormy economic struggle. The worker, suddenly aroused to activity by the electric shock of political action, immediately seizes the weapon lying nearest his hand for the fight against his condition of economic slavery. The stormy gesture of the political struggle causes him to feel with unexpected intensity the weight and the pressure of his economic chains. And while, for example, the most violent political struggle in Germany, the electoral struggle or the parliamentary struggle over the custom tariff, exercise a scarcely perceptible direct influence upon the course and the intensity of the wage struggles being conducted at the same time in Germany, every political action of the proletariat in Russia immediately expresses itself in the extension of the area and the deepening of the intensity of the economic struggle. The revolution thus first creates the social conditions in which the sudden change of the economic struggle into the political and of the political struggle into the economic is possible, a change that finds its expression in the mass strike. And if the vulgar scheme sees the connection between mass strike and revolution only in bloody street encounters, with which the mass conclude, a somewhat deeper look into the Russian events shows an exactly opposite connection. In reality, the mass strike does not produce the revolution, but the revolution produces the mass strike. 4. It is sufficient in order to comprehend the foregoing to obtain an explanation of the question of the conscious direction and initiative in the mass strike. If the mass strike is not an isolated act but a whole period of the class struggle, and if this period is identical with the period of revolution, it is clear that the mass strike cannot be called at will, even when the decision to do so may come from the highest committee of the strongest social democratic party. As long as the social democracy has not the power to stage and command revolutions according to its fancy, even the greatest enthusiasm and impatience of the social democratic troops will not suffice to call into being a real period of mass strike as a living, powerful movement of the people. On the basis of a decision of the party leadership and of party discipline, a single short demonstration may well be arranged similar to the Swedish mass strike, or to the latest Austrian strike, or even the Hamburg mass strike of January 17th. These demonstrations, however, differ from an actual period of revolutionary mass strikes in exactly the same way that the well-known demonstrations in foreign ports during a period of strained diplomatic relations differ from a naval war. A mass strike born of pure discipline and enthusiasm will, at best, merely play the role of an episode, of a symptom of the fighting mood of the working class upon which, however, the conditions of a peaceful period are reflected. Of course, even during the revolution, mass strikes do not exactly fall from heaven. They must be brought about in some way or another by the workers. The resolution and determination of the workers also play a part in indeed the initiative and the wider direction naturally fall to the share of the organized and most enlightened kernel of the proletariat. But the scope of this initiative in this direction, for the most part, is confined to application to individual acts, to individual strikes, when the revolutionary period has already begun, and indeed, in most cases, is confined within the boundaries of a single town. Thus, for example, as we have seen, the Social Democrats have already on several occasions successfully issued a direct summons for a mass strike in Baku, in Warsaw, in Lodz, and in Petersburg. But this succeeds much less frequently when applied to general movements of the whole proletariat. Further, there are quite definite limits set to initiative and conscious direction. During the revolution, it is extremely difficult for any directing organ of the proletarian movement to foresee and to calculate which occasions and factors can lead to explosions and which cannot. Here also initiative and direction do not consist in issuing commands, 
according to one's inclinations, but in the most adroit adaptability to the given situation and the closest possible contact with the mood of the masses. The element of spontaneity, as we have seen, plays a great part in all Russian mass strikes without exception, be it as a driving force or as a restraining influence. This does not occur in Russia, however, because social democracy is still young or weak, but because in every individual act of the struggle, so very many important economic, political and social, general and local, material and physical factors react upon one another in such a way that no single act can be arranged and resolved as if it were a mathematical problem. The revolution, even when the proletariat, with the social democrats at their head, appears in the leading role, is not a maneuver of the proletariat in the open field, but a fight in the midst of the incessant crashing, displacing, and crumbling of the social foundation. In short, in the mass strikes in Russia, the element of spontaneity plays such a predominant part not because the Russian proletariat is, quote, uneducated, unquote, but because revolutions do not allow anyone to play the schoolmaster with them. On the other hand, we see in Russia that the same revolution that rendered the social democrats' command of the mass strike so difficult, and which struck the conductor's baton from, or pressed into, their hand at all times in such a comical fashion, we see that it resolved of itself all those difficulties of the mass strike that, in the theoretical scheme of German discussion, are regarded as the chief concerns of the, quote, directing body, unquote, the question of, quote, provisioning, unquote, discovery of cost and sacrifice. It goes without saying that it does not resolve them in the way that they would be resolved in a quiet, confidential discussion between the higher directing committees of the labor movement, the members sitting pencil in hand. The quote regulation unquote of all these questions consists in the circumstance that the revolution brings such an enormous mass of people upon the stage that any computation or regulation of the cost of the movement, such as can be effected in a civil process, appears to be an altogether hopeless undertaking. The leading organizations in Russia certainly attempt to support the direct victims to the best of their ability. Thus, for example, the brave victims of the gigantic lockout in St. Petersburg, which followed the eight-hour day campaign, were supported for weeks. But all these measures are, in the enormous balance of the revolution, but as a drop in the ocean. At the moment that a real earnest period of mass strikes begins, all these calculations of costs become merely projects for exhausting the ocean with a tumbler. And it is a veritable ocean of frightful privations and sufferings that is brought by every revolution to the proletarian masses. And the solution that a revolutionary period makes of this apparently invincible difficulty consists, under the circumstances, of such an immense volume of mass idealism being simultaneously released that the masses are insensible to the bitterest sufferings. With the psychology of a trade unionist who will not stay off his work on May Day unless he is assured in advance of a definite amount of support in the event of his being victimized, neither revolution nor mass right can be made. But in the storm of the revolutionary period, even the proletarian is transformed from a provident paterfamilias demanding support into a, quote, revolutionary romanticist, unquote, for whom even the highest good, life itself, to say nothing of material well-being, possesses but little in comparison with the ideals of the struggle. If, however, the direction of the mass strike in the sense of command over its origin, and in the sense of the calculating and reckoning of the cost, is a matter of the revolutionary period itself, the directing of the mass strike becomes, in an altogether different sense, the duty of social democracy and its leading organs. Instead of puzzling their heads with the technical side, with the mechanism of the mass strike, the social democrats are called upon to assume political leadership in the midst of the revolutionary period. To give the cue for, and the direction to, the fight, to so regulate the tactics of the political struggle in its every phase and at its every moment, that the entire team of the available power of the proletariat, which is already released and active, will find expression in the battle array of the party. 
To see that the tactics of the Social Democrats are decided according to their resoluteness and acuteness, and that they never fall below the level demanded by actual relations of forces, but rather rise above it, that is the most important task of the directing body in a period of mass strikes. And this direction changes of itself, to a certain extent, into technical direction. A consistent, resolute, progressive tactic on the part of the Social Democrats produces in the masses a feeling of security, self-confidence, and desire for struggle, a vacillating weak tactic, based on an underestimation of the proletariat, has a crippling and confusing effect upon the masses. In the first case, mass strikes break out of themselves, and opportunely, in the second case, remain ineffective amid direct summons of the directing body to mass strikes, and of both the Russian Revolution afford striking examples.